the drive to acquire money is addictive and uh, it tends to be exploitative and uh, therefore it's socially injurious. If you're a low surplus society and somebody makes a lot of money, the only way to make it is by making somebody else poor. And most societies try to avoid that. Western civilization uh, in Greece and Rome was an exception. Today's world is dividing between two opposing camps, and the antagonism between the United States and China is not simply rivals for the same system uh, competing to make companies. Uh, it's a clash of economic systems. The United States is not trying to become a manufacturing power. It's voluntarily deindustrialized itself and given that role to China to avoid having to pay wages to its own labor force. So uh, the U.S. corporations make profits by deindustrializing the economy, not by industrializing it. The question is, how is an, a country that's deindustrializing going to get most of the wealth of the whole world, China's wealth, Russia's wealth, Europe's wealth, the global South wealth, how will it get all into itself if it doesn't have any industry, if all it is has is military power and uh, control of the oil trade? You can think of America as uh, uh, President Obama and uh, John McCain uh, characterized Russia. It's an oil station with atom bombs. Uh, now, China's not trying to make money primarily financially. It, 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 uh, when the central bank of China creates money, it's not to buy stocks and bonds to push up the value of the stocks and bonds that a financial class has, as in the United States. Uh, it's planning to spending money into the economy as a whole to develop infrastructure, to create uh, the basic needs, uh, to create what a, an economy physically and tangibly needs to go forward. So in the very first look, you, uh, it, this seems to be a conflict between finance capitalism in the United States and industrial socialism in China. But what I want to talk about today is it goes further than this. Uh, the uh, Professor Huang mentioned my background as an economist, but for 25 years, I worked out with Harvard University's anthropology department, uh, putting together a group of uh, Assyriologists, Egyptologists, and archaeologists, writing a history of how did the economic practices of civilization actually begin. And uh, when you look at this, you realize that uh, Eurasia, the whole world, uh, up until classical Greece and Rome, up until about 2,000 years ago, the whole world had a similar philosophy. It was not a financial philosophy. The whole idea is how do you keep an economy stable and avoid the maldistribution uh, of land? Uh, all of this changed in uh, the Western civilization and I want to emphasize how much different Western civilization has been for 2,000 years. And the, uh, America's fight for neoliberalism isn't simply a fight for what is happening in America. It's a fight for what happened in the Roman Empire. Because the United States today is taken over by a military oligarchy that's very much like the Roman Empire. 
uh, and uh, it's it, it's not making money at home because the financial oligarchy has uh, impoverished the rest of the economy. That's what happened in Rome. And the only way the United States or Rome or all of the empires in between, England, Holland, Spain, could make money was by exploiting foreign countries. So that's the real difference between uh, um, the United States and China today. China is trying to make prosperity at home, not to extract it from other countries. The United States uh, and the Western countries, Europe, the NATO countries, can no longer make prosperity at home. All they can do is take, and all they can do is enforce this, is to try to convince other countries that their way of doing something uh, is uh, really uh, the, the best way to do it. And uh, we know that that uh, was a failure in history, and that's what I want to talk about. So suppose you're uh, 2,500 years ago, and uh, you're the ruler of any country. Every the great challenge facing every society in history has been uh, how do you conduct trade and uh, credit without letting merchants and creditors make money by exploiting their customers and debtors? Uh, this was the problem that uh, uh, ancient China had 2,000 years ago. India had uh, almost every country put creditors and uh, merchants at the bottom of the social scale. The idea was to prevent debt from growing up, to prevent uh, people making money financially in a way that exploited uh, other people. And all of antiquity, if you look at the philosophers of uh, from Greece and Rome all the way to Lao Tse, to uh, Buddha, uh, there was a common understanding that uh, the drive to acquire money is addictive and uh, it tends to be exploitative and uh, therefore it socially injurious. If you're a low surplus society and somebody makes a lot of money, the only way to make it is by making somebody else poor. And most societies try to avoid that. Western civilization uh, in Greece and Rome was an exception. Greece and Rome uh, had uh, basically was all about exploitation. There was a a philosophical fight over this uh, in 2,500 years ago. The Greek had a word uh, the love of money, silver mania, uh, wealth was addiction, uh, and they saw that it was addiction. And how are you going to keep uh, people from wanting to get rich by exploiting others? Well, that was the Greek concept of uh, hubris. Uh, avarice and greed were uh, basically to be uh, avoided, but how do you avoid it without uh, w- w- without putting in place a set of laws uh, to prevent it. Well, the way uh, ancient societies avoided this was to have uh, rulers giving them the power to prevent a oligarchy, a wealthy creditor class or a merchant class from coming from taking over. Uh, they were given enough power to uh, make sure that the population was free of debt, that uh, the small uh, cultivators had their own land, uh, and that they weren't all of us. They weren't going to fall into debt and become uh, bond servants or slaves of the creditors, because if they were, then they wouldn't be available to fight in the army, and they wouldn't be available to perform public corvée labor, to build uh, palaces and uh, uh, roads and all of the infrastructure that uh, most countries relied on on, uh, on uh, labor. And if there were rulers to uh, avoid, uh, to behave selfishly, 
they tended to be overthrown uh, or else the population would run away or maybe they'd support uh, a rival country that was uh, invading them. But the whole idea was that rulers uh, had to do, had to promote overall prosperity. Well, that's supposed to be what democracy is all about. But democracy in the West has not been very effective in checking the emergence of a financial oligarchy. Uh, democracy really has tended to evolve into oligarchy. Uh, that's what uh, uh, Aristotle said. They evolve into oligarchy, and the oligarchy tends to make itself uh, into a hereditary aristocracy. And uh, the qu uh, question is, how are you going to prevent this? Well, just imagine uh, that this was the overall morality of everybody 2,500 years ago was, how do, how do you have a fair society that keeps people from falling into bondage? Well, there was not any archaic Milton Friedman to say that greed is good. Uh, there was no concept. Nobody 25 years ago would have said what the Chicago school, what the American neoliberals say. No one said, uh, everybody help society by making as much money as you can. Uh, and if you can uh, make money by making other people poor, that's Darwinian evolution. And that's how societies go forward. Nobody said anything about that. All of that uh, is new. But basically, uh, it all comes from uh, what happened in classical Greece and Rome that uh, was quite different from everything else. So to understand what happened in the West and where civilization went wrong 2,000 years ago, uh, you have to realize that imagine the, uh, the whole map of the world. On the Western periphery, there was uh, the Mediterranean and uh, the Aegean, uh, Italy and Greece. This was way in the West. They were what today you would call barbarians compared to the East. Well, to uh, make uh, matters worse, in about 1200 BC, there was really bad weather. We're talking about global warming today. There was a drought. And uh, the population throughout the whole Eastern Mediterranean shrank tremendously. People, uh, there were whole peoples, that uh, uh, tribes and groups that had to move because uh, the land wasn't producing enough to live. So uh, there was a shrinkage, and uh, there had been palace economies in uh, uh, in Mycenaean Greece and Bronze Age Greece in the uh, second millennium BC. All of these emptied out. And between 1200 BC and 750 BC, there was just uh, everything sort of uh, fell apart, and there were very local warlords uh, would would take over. And uh, around 750 BC, uh, weather began to get better again, and there began to be trade, and Syrian and Phoenician traders began to sail west uh, to trade, and they sailed to uh, Greece and Italy, and they brought civilization, uh, Eastern civilization, to the west. They, and one of the things they brought, if you're going to do trade, everything has to operate on credit. They brought the idea of charging interest uh, to the West. The, uh, the first uh, interest was developed in the Middle East, in Sumer and Babylonia, in uh, what is now Iraq, uh, by the palace economies. And uh, interest and money and the use of silver uh, and weights and measures to uh, uh, see how much silver you're exchanging, all of that was developed uh, in the Bronze Age, along with contracts, uh, 
uh, and all of the techniques that uh, modern society uses. So all of a sudden, these uh, uh, were brought uh, to barbarian regions where uh, there were very local uh, local warlords. And uh, the historians of Greece in the 7th and 6th century BC called them mafia-like states. They were just a few families managed to get control of the land, and they held most of the Greek population uh, in bondage, uh, in slavery. And uh, one, and almost one country after another, uh, from uh, Sparta in Greece uh, to uh, up to uh, Athens and to the Greek islands uh, and uh, Corinth, uh, reformers came to power. Reformers overthrew through the families, and uh, they were called tyrants. And tyrants mean you have enough power to overthrow the families, cancel the debts, and give the land to the people. Uh, they weren't democratically elected. Uh, there was no democracy yet. But by overthrowing the old mafia-type uh, families, uh, they like that would be like America overthrowing the billionaires uh, today. They uh, they prepared the groundwork uh, for democracy. Uh, something very, uh, they were very progressive in the 7th and 6th centuries. Something similar occurred in Rome. Uh, Rome's history ha- uh, talks about the kings. And uh, the kings made Rome uh, a very powerful country by giving everybody land. Uh, nobody wanted to live where Rome was because it was uh, near the Tiber River. And there were a lot of mosquitoes there. And it was uh, very hilly land. Uh, and so... Uh, they, uh, they, they, the leaders said, okay, we're, uh, anybody who wants to come, we're going to give land. Uh, we're going to give them their own land. Uh, they can become our citizens. If you're being enslaved by your local uh, uh, mafia-like leaders in uh, Etruria and the rest of uh, Italy, come to us. And so uh, P- uh, R- Rome became a magnet for immigrants, and they grew. And uh, the uh, the king said, how are we going to prevent an oligarchy from developing? Well, uh, every Roman king uh, was not chosen from the rich people, from uh, the wealthy families. Every king was appointed from another another city-state so that they wouldn't have any loyalty to a particular family. And that was Rome's great period of growth and under the kings, not the democracy. But in 509 B.C., the king, the oligarchy overthrew the kings. They said, the kings are arrogant. They're trying to tell the oligarchy what to do. It was a violent revolution. The oligarchy took over and wrote a constitution that was different from what had been everywhere else in the world. Uh, everywhere else in the world had debt cancellations regularly. All throughout uh, uh, the Near East, every ruler who would come to power would cancel the debts, redistribute the land, to prevent an oligarchy from ending up with the land, to prevent an oligarchy from ending up with uh, the labor. But uh, uh, in Rome and uh, Greece, they had no tradition of palace rulers doing this because they didn't have palaces, because all they had were the local barbarian uh, uh, chieftains. Well, the barbarians took over and they said, uh, we're going to have a different rule. Uh, all the debts have to be paid. If uh, anyone wants to cancel the debts, uh, well, we're going to assassinate them. And for five centuries, uh, there were debt revolts in Rome and Greece. Populations kept revolting, saying, we want to cancel the debts and give us the land. Again and again, the revolts were put down 
uh, and the oligarchy got stronger and stronger and uh, created a Senate that didn't give any uh, democratic uh, privileges uh, at all uh, uh, to the people. You could, you had to vote for a, uh, uh, what was then a billionaire, uh, in order to uh, uh, have a choice. But your only choice was one billionaire or another billionaire. Uh, and uh, the the result was that uh, Rome ended up uh, conquering uh, other countries uh, because of, uh, militarily uh, it was not producing much at home. It would conquer other countries. It would loot all of their money, their uh, loot their temples, loot the palaces, melt down the gold and silver. And uh, that's how uh, Rome uh, was able to uh, build up its, its money supply, not by trade, but by military force. Uh, you may begin to see a parallel with uh, the modern United States, but the same thing happened in, with uh, Spain in the 16th century when it discovered the New World. Uh, the, it happened uh, with England uh, and England's empire, uh, uh, and it, it happened again today. So if you understand how the Western civilization developed in a way that contained the seeds of its failure today, uh, its decline and fall, uh, you have to realize that uh, it, in the historical record, Rome and Greece were the only countries to begin privatizing what was public in other countries. Uh, they didn't have any palace ruler to uh, run things or a group of uh, trained uh, technicians to say, here's how uh, we're going to plan a society uh, to go ahead. Uh, they, it was basically uh, an autocracy. Uh, a landed aristocracy that uh, really uh, ended up leading to feudalism. Well, the right now uh, in the United States, uh, the neoliberals uh, have their kind of Bible, and it's a book by uh, Frederick Hayek called The Road to Serfdom. And he said the road to serfdom is a strong government. By a strong government, he meant a government strong enough to prevent an oligarchy from taking over, to prevent a financial class from taking over, getting uh, the rest of the population in debt, and then reducing it to debt bondage, and taking the land, and uh, uh, making other uh, clients uh, just dependent on uh, uh, the landowners. Well, the result of all this in Rome was the real serfdom. Uh, the Rome uh, Roman economy declined and fell, and uh, that uh, uh, led to serfdom. Uh, so serfdom is the result of the oligarchy taking over and impoverishing uh, uh, the economy. And essentially, that's what's hap been happening uh, to the United States and Europe since uh, 2008. And uh, what uh, distinguishes the Western society from uh, what Asian society and the Near East was the absence of debt relief to restore balance. Uh, all throughout uh, Asia for 2,000 years, uh, uh, when there would be a crop failure or uh, a, a disease, uh, the rulers would cancel, would say, okay, uh, we have to cancel the debts and ha everybody starts all over again uh, afresh because otherwise you, you would have most of the population falling in debt to a ruling aristocracy. And uh, uh, under Confucianism, uh, you you would have uh, uh, the uh, getting a public position uh, by general testing in a, de <clears throat> a democratic way. Nothing like that occurs 
uh, in the United uh, States today. It's uh, more or less education has become hereditary. And in order to get an education to become a manager of a corporation or a country, uh, you have to run into very heavy debt, so heavy debt that uh, if you're a student graduating in the United States and you don't inherit from your family a large amount of money, you won't won't have enough uh, uh, income to buy a house, uh, even on mortgage. Banks won't lend to you. So uh, basically, the financial colonization uh, 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 that's occurred of, of the country impoverished uh, the country. Well, all of a sudden, all of in, uh, you can look at the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and you can say it's really bad to, to have a greedy, self-serving oligarchy trying to get rich itself instead of make the whole economy better because that collapses the economy. Well, that's not what uh, is taught in uh, the universities. Uh, if you look at, uh, go to a uh, American university and either study economics or study political science, you find that the great victory of neoliberalism, if they could create a, a, what they think is a perfect world, look at what happened in the one country they had a free hand in reshaping, the Soviet Union under Boris Yeltsin, with, uh, where American advisors went and said, uh, what you have to do is get rid of the state. You can't have a state because if you had a state, that would uh, uh, prevent private banks from taking over. That would uh, uh, prevent uh, uh, a domestic billionaire class. So uh, uh, the neoliberals from the United States said, told the managers of the uh, uh, Russian companies, why don't you register uh, your gas, your oil, your nickel, your public utilities, all in your own names. And instead of belonging to the state, it'll belong to you personally. And now that you, and so they did that, they uh, said, okay, we've issued stock. We own it all personally. And then the Americans said, well, nobody has any money uh, in Russia uh, uh, to give value to all these stocks because we've had uh, the uh, cr uh, crash therapy uh, there. And so the only way you can make money on all these companies that you've privatized is to sell to the Americans. And so uh, the Russian uh, kleptocrats who uh, gave their... Uh, uh, registered property in their own name began to sell their companies to uh, the Americans. Russia became the world's leading stock market in 1980, uh, 1995, 1996. Uh, it soared and, uh, uh, Michael Kartakovsky, who headed Yukos uh, Oil, planned to sell, uh, the whole company to Exxon, uh, the oil company here. And, uh, America would have ended up with all of uh, Russia's resources. So the ideal of neoliberals where they had the ideal plan was essentially the Americans end up buying all of your resources. It's as if the Americans went to China and said, uh, uh, we think the head of your electric company should uh, just give himself all the shares and now let him sell these shares to Americans and we'll own it. The head of your railroad would uh, give, give uh, the railroad managers all the shares and they'd sell it to the United States. That would that would be what the Americans wanted, and that's what they actually expected to happen in China when it was uh, invited into the to join the World uh, Trade Organization uh, in 2001. The idea was that uh, China, if it uh, followed the neoliberal uh, plans of, of world trade, 
would end up uh, basically being a financial colony of the United States. And the United States is different from ancient Spain or uh, Rome or uh, England by it doesn't have a military occupation there. It, it, it uh, establishes its power financially. Uh, and that's what makes uh, the American uh, uh, unipolar world order so central that the whole world operates in dollars now that are created essentially by the United States, uh, by computers, and put into circulation by uh, America's military bases all over the world uh, being spread. So uh, uh, the United States is uh, able, for instance, to uh, tell uh, the Global South countries, well, listen to the advice that the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank gives you. Uh, don't feed yourself. Uh, buy in the cheapest market. Buy American grain, and you should use your land to make plantation export crops. Uh, you, you have to prevent local land reform. You, have, you must not grow your own food. Uh, you must depend on the United States. Uh, and uh, you have to essentially uh, uh, do to your economy what happened in Russia, which is exactly what the University of Chicago boys did in Chile after the United States uh, uh, assassinated its uh, democratically elected leader, Allende, and put uh, Pinochet uh, in power. Uh, the ideal of U the U.S. Uh, uh, foreign policy is colonialist because it's willing to engage in regime change. Uh, its policy is to assassinate uh, every foreign leader that is unwilling to, uh, to let America come in and privatize uh, its uh, public uh, utilities and uh, uh, sell these off to the United States. Uh, well, obviously, uh, this is, you can see that in uh, the new Cold War uh, with Ukraine right now. Uh, President Biden has said we need regime change in Russia. Won't somebody shoot President Putin? Uh, we've got to get rid of him. He's uh, uh, a new Hitler. And uh, uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton uh, keeps calling Putin a, a Clinton, uh, a Hitler. They are essentially calling for uh, assassination. They are trying to back uh, terrorist groups in Russia, uh, in China, uh, all around uh, in, in Venezuela, Latin America, uh, all to force uh, what we call client oligarchies, to make these uh, countries dependent on the United States. Uh, that's a completely different system from uh, uh, China's uh, Belt and Road. Uh, and this is why the United States said, uh, has announced that uh, China is the number one enemy of the United States. It's an enemy in the sense that it has a different economic system. And if the United States and the European economies are shrinking with unemployment, with uh, inflation, we call it stagnation here, uh, stagflation, stagnation and inflation, while the United States and Europe are uh, going further and further into debt and shrinking, China is going forward and building up its economy and building up the economies of its uh, partner countries along the Belt and Road. Well, this is a threat to the United States because if you're Africa or Latin America, uh, South America, uh, or uh, South Asian countries, uh, who are you going to want your economy to look like? Are you going to want your economy to look like the United States uh, with uh, more and more uh, 
economic polarization, a financial class that's getting rich, uh, and the 99% of the population further and further in debt? Or are you going to want to look like China uh, going forward and actually increasing your means of production uh, and living standards? Well, uh, as long as China exists to, as a success story, the, uh, the Americans call that an existential threat because the threat is one of, uh, uh, of how the economy is organized. And uh, again, if you look at history, which I'm now going to uh, take a long view of, uh, th this is not simply a United States policy alone, alone. This has been the policy of Western countries for 2,000 years. It was a policy of Rome. It was the policy of feudalism in feudal Europe. Uh, it was the policy of uh, uh, the Spanish conquest of uh, Latin America, taking the silver and gold uh, that went right through its hands. Uh, uh, it just dissipated it all. It was a policy of uh, Holland, of, of England. Uh, it, it's a way of organizing society to permit uh, the forward planning and the wealth to be taken by the financial sector, not by government. Uh, in the United States, uh, the whole idea of the Federal Reserve Bank in uh, 1913, just before World War I began, was to shift policymaking away from Washington to New York City uh, by creating a private Federal Reserve to do what the U.S. Treasury had used to be, do used to be doing. Well, Rome never was a democracy. Uh, as I told you, Aristotle said, well, democracies evolve into oligarchy. And uh, that's exactly what's happening today. But uh, President Biden and the State Department neoliberals accused China and other com any country trying to maintain its own economic independence and self-reliance of being autocratic. So what does, uh, there's a rhetoric here, a kind of Orwellian vocabulary uh, of that juxtaposes democracy to autocracy. Well, what they call autocracy is a government strong enough to defend against a Western-oriented, <clears throat> excuse me, financial oligarchy from uh, indebting the population to itself and then prying away uh, uh, the land and other property into its own hands. Uh, so uh, what a democracy uh, is uh, whatever uh, the American uh, government uh, and Wall Street says uh, should be the leader. Uh, America said, uh, let's tell you what democracy is in Venezuela. It's not who you Venezuelans elect as president. It's who we appoint as president. And we've appointed our, uh, Mr. Guaido as uh, president because he's promised to your country, to Venezuela, exactly what General Pinochet did to Chile. So we've appointed him to president. That's democracy. And the opposition is the autocracy you now have in Venezuela, a country that says, no, you can't take over. Uh, the, uh, our oil wealth belongs to the government to be used for the people. Uh, that is uh, defined as autocracy, not democracy. Uh, and uh, being able to vote for your president is not democracy unless it's uh, appointed by the United States uh, oligarchy. So you have to go through the uh, language here. Well, th this uh, contrast between democracy and autocracy is exactly the rhetoric that was used in ancient Rome and Greece. There were many democratic reformers in Rome uh, that tried to take over. 
and they were killed for saying, you're seeking kingship. When Julius Caesar came, uh, uh, was elected, he had supported, uh, the, uh, uh, another uh, uh, Senate uh, leader who wanted to cancel the debts uh, in, in Rome. Caesar was elected and everybody thought that he was going to cancel the debts and redistribute the land. And so the oligarchy killed him. And uh, Cicero, the, uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, hired uh, lawyer, said he wished he had been there to stick in one of the knives. They all agreed that Caesar had to be killed. The same thing happened in Greece. There were many revolutions in Greek oligarchic cities uh, uh, that, that took over. And uh, if there was a reformer saying, no, let's cancel the debts, uh, the oligarchs would say, you're seeking tyranny. You want to be a tyrant. And, of course, it was the tyrants that canceled the debts. The tyrants were the Democrats of their day. The tyrants were the people trying to use the government for the people. But they were the good guys. They were the people overthrowing the mafia state overthrowing uh, the aristocracy. And that's why this, this whole fight that you're seeing today is just a replay of uh, what happened in, in Greece and Rome. Uh, in about two months, I will be publishing my history of the collapse of antiquity, uh, spelling all of this out. But uh, I think when you look at the long picture, you see that the fight between the United States and China today is really a fight of the whole dynamic of Western civilization that's based on not canceling debts, not redistributing the land, of leaving wealth in private hands. And uh, once land is sold, once you lose your money and the land, you lose it irreversibly, as opposed to the whole uh, uh, circular time that that you had uh, throughout uh, the Near East and Asia. So uh, the problem that uh, is that the Western democracies have not proved adept at preventing oligarchies from emerging and polarizing uh, the economy. Uh, And uh, if you look at who's actually enacting and enforcing policies to seek to check the oligarchy today, uh, it's only in uh, countries that have a centralized government rather than uh, a a democracy controlled by the U.S. We don't know uh, what's going to happen there. But uh, the, nearly all of the non-Western societies had protection against the emergence of a mercantile or a rentier, rentier oligarchy. And that's why it's so important to recognize that what has become Western civilization represents a break from everything that went before. And what China is trying to do with its uh, public uh, sponsorship of wealth is to pick up the whole line of where civilization seemed to be going 2,500 years ago. Nobody expected uh, civilization to, to all to say greed is good. Nobody expected that a civilization could survive in the way that the West has survived. That's why every country, from uh, India to uh, China, um, every country we know in Asia had uh, a ruler to try to uh, preserve widespread landholding to preserve the economic balance so that the economy would not polarize because if it polarized, either it would uh, uh, be impoverished or the population would simply run away. So the question is uh, 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 freedom or liberty. Uh, The the Western uh, college courses, if you send your students to study economics, they talk about Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill 
uh, as if somehow today's economy was the kind of free market that Adam Smith and uh, Mill in the 19th century talked about. Uh, but when they talked about a free market, they meant an, a, a market free from a landlord class, free from a monopoly class, and free from private banking. A free market was one where the government had taken over and finally freed economies from the legacy of feudalism. And it was feudalism that created a landlord class that ended up with the rents and uh, created uh, private banking, uh, largely through the Christian church itself uh, and the papacy of the major bankers. Well, uh, this was to be freed. And all of that seemed to be where Western civilization was going in the late 19th century. It looked like finally the West was going to join the rest of civilization and pick up where it took a, a wrong detour 2,000 years ago. But then World War I happened, and uh, the oligarchy fought back, and the oligarchy changed the whole concept of free market. It used the same word that the, Greek, that the uh, uh, classical economists used, the free market, but they meant a market free from government protecting the population. A market was free for the uh, creditor class to take over, a, a market for the, the monopolists to take over, uh, to get rid of anti-monopoly legislation, uh, a, a market free for bankers to uh, create credit for whatever they wanted to, but uh, not for uh, the public. And a market where it was free for politicians and billionaires to take over and have the government sell off the, the public railroads, uh, sell off uh, the public domain, uh, sell off uh, uh, the land, sell off everything and privatize it, uh, and uh, do what Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan did uh, and uh, impose neoliberalism. And neoliberalism in the United States was simply the old uh, uh, Roman uh, oligarchy that led to the decline and fall, which is why the decline and fall of Rome is so much like uh, the decline and fall of uh, the United States today. Well, uh, it's it's too late to save uh, the U.S. and European economies the way they are. The the whole uh, since 1945, uh, you had the world uh, emerge from the war without uh, any without private debt at all, because there was very little to borrow for to buy in World War II. All since 1945, there's been a vast run up of debt that is now so large that uh, most Americans, half of Americans don't have any savings at all. Uh, They're broke. Uh, They are in debt. uh, If they go to school, they have student debt. If you buy a house, you go into mortgage debt. Uh, You need a credit card debt to get by. Uh, The economy is, uh, is in a debt deflation and is being impoverished in the same way uh, that Rome was. And, uh, this, uh, when, uh, Asian students are sent to the United States, it's as if you think of the West as a force of nature. You think, well, what's happened in West is the future. What's happened in West is what's natural. Well, it's not natural at all. The natural fight is what China's doing and saying, we're not going to go down the road that led Rome to collapse and has led the United States and Europe to collapse. We're picking up where civilization left off 2,000 years ago. We're picking up the whole line of civilization again. So this, uh, the, the Americans are fighting against this, and they have a slogan for fighting against uh, China. And their slogan is the end of history. Uh, history has uh, gone as far as it can 
What does it mean for history to end? It means there isn't going to be any reform. There isn't going to be any change. Leave things just as they are with us in power, with us uh, 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 creating our dollars. And you have to use our dollars. You have to uh, conduct your trade in dollars uh, so that we can grab them. If you do something we don't like, then uh, and you hold all of your savings and dollars, we can grab them. Like we've just grabbed all of Russia's dollars in the West, all of Russia's gold in the West. We've grabbed all of Venezuela's gold. Uh, and we want you to, to do that. That is the end of history. And uh, we don't want history to go forward because uh, that would be a move away from a unipolar economy to a multipolar uh, economy. And the end of history means you, uh, now that we have privatization, and financialization uh, and a, a shift of government planning away from the political center to the economic and financial center, that's uh, the, end, the end of history. This is perfection. We can't go anymore. Well, the irony is that uh, in the last year, you've seen President Biden and American diplomacy help ex- drive other countries away from all of this. Uh, they've been uh, saying they've been putting the sanctions on uh, uh, every th- uh, vital uh, computer pon- opponents and things that uh, China needs. They've been uh, blocking uh, Russia from, uh, from food. They've forced uh, Russia, China, India, uh, Indonesia, they forced other countries to go their own way and to become independent so that America can't say, uh, if you don't uh, uh, do what we want, we will stop uh, exporting food to you and you'll starve like we tried to starve China in the 1950s after Mao's revolution. Uh, We will try to disrupt your economy uh, and we'll grab your dollars. Well, China, Russia, and other countries are de-dollarizing and saying, well, okay, we see that that's what you're threatening to do. We're going to protect ourselves from your threat. We're going to denominate our trade and our investment and our savings in our own currencies, uh, with our, our own bank, independently uh, of yours. That's how, why the world is dividing uh, in, in, uh, in two uh, parts right now. So uh, the end of history uh, uh, turned out to be very short-lived. Uh, it, was, it was a dream, and, uh, but the United States still thinks that it can uh, impose this uh, somehow. And uh, the end of history is... What that meant was there is no alternative. This is the end of history. Well, there is an alternative. And uh, that's what uh, China and uh, other countries are trying to do. And if you look over the whole sweep of ancient history, you can see that the alternative was to create a, strong, a society with a strong enough government to use, uh, uh, create money and credit to finance its own growth uh, of production uh, and living standards, uh, to finance uh, itself, uh, not uh, uh, create a uh, an oligarchy. Uh, and today, uh, you you have China, India, Iran, and other uh, uh, Eurasian economies taking the first step is a precondition for a, a multipolar world by rejecting America's insistence that they join uh, the United States uh, trade and financial. Uh, sanctions against Russia. Uh, it, there was just a big meeting in, uh, uh, in I, uh, I think, uh, uh, 
uh, Indonesia, where the United States had asked China to join against Russia. And you can, you can imagine what the Chinese delegates said. Well, you want to destroy Russia so that after you destroy it, now you can do the same thing to us. Do you think we're crazy? And uh, all that the United States can do is what uh, Rome did 2,000 years ago. It says, well, there's one way to end history. We can atom bomb you all. Uh, and uh, if you think we're kidding, we're going to make sure that the presidents we elect are crazy. So you don't know what a crazy person will doing will do. This was the policy that President Nixon uh, developed in the 1970s. Uh, uh, he said, uh, I've appointed crazy people in charge of the military. So if you don't do what we want, we're just crazy enough to blow up the whole world. Well, uh, in Russia, President uh, Yelp, uh, President Putin had a response. Uh, he said, well, who wants to live in a world without Russia? Uh, we can blow up the world, too. So that's the, uh, uh, the point at which uh, we've, we've reached. Uh, the question is whether history will be determined uh, militarily or by uh, uh, economically. And uh, the, uh, if it's economic, the United States can only maintain the prosperity of its billionaires by extracting wealth from other countries. Uh, America got rich off the trade of China, off the American, the American companies by moving their labor to China, impoverished the labor force. They, they created a rust built in America. The factories are all rusty. They've been turned into luxury housing for financial managers, uh, but there's no industry here. Well, uh, the, the whole idea is that, uh, the, the, uh, America without industry can somehow live by exploiting other countries. But how are you going to get other countries to go along with it? That's where, uh, China is taking the lead. And, uh, for the first time, other countries have, uh, an, enough economic output that they don't need the United States. They can go it alone. They can be, uh, depend on each other conduct their trade on each other, and uh, basically uh, uh, survive. And that is uh, what is the hope for you is the nightmare for uh, the United States. And the United States uh, is should be a model of what China and uh, other countries need to avoid is you go forward.